You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 133 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and today I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnett. David is unable to join us because he's currently out taking out two birds with one stick. For this week's episode, we are joined by Josh Wolford. Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Staying warm here in uh, a very snowy West Michigan. I heard Michigan got a lot of snow. So we got introduced to Josh couple months, like half a year ago at this point. Uh, so we've been emailing back and forth trying to get him on the show for quite some time. We were really intrigued by his uh, current research as well as his master's thesis. So that's what he's on to uh, talk about today. So once again, man, thank you so much for being so understanding with our ridiculous summer schedule and then oh. us getting back on track so we can get you get you out for the December. So Oh, Welcome you. to the yeah, show, man. No worries, man. Yeah, I understand how busy it is. And you you guys were all doing archaeology this summer. It's not like you can bring this out to the field, I imagine. We've tried. <laughs> yeah. This is the most diplomatic way to put that. We've we've tried. <laughs> that's yeah, that's that's where David was all this summer. It's like <laughs> trying to get Big him. Holes. Yeah, via Starlink mm-hmm. to do this was oh, was a wild uh, wild ride. Yes. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, because they were out in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming, weren't they? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. they just trying to siphon the free Wi-Fi off of a library from the parking lot. It was, you know, <laughs> it was, it was we, wild. <laughs> we we tried. He put his heart into it. We were like, David, just we'll just record without you, man. This is this is too much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but anyways, <laughs> about you, not about David. Um, can you just for our audience, you know, introduce yourself, who you are, where are you at academically, and what you're doing, man? Uh, my name is Josh Wolford. I have a master's degree in anthropology from Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, or should I say Detroit, Michigan. I got my bachelor's at Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, and actually I double minored in biology and geology, hence why my thesis is uh, quite interdisciplinary. I've pretty much been interested in not just archaeology, but all that stuff since I was like a little kid. You know, I grew up on on Lake Huron, and there was rocks, you know, everywhere from every time period in geologic history. And, you know, I remember growing up watching, I think it was Jurassic Park was what it did for me. They were like hitting, hitting rocks with hammers and there's fossils of dinosaurs. And I'm like, whoa, I want to do that. So I was like two, three hitting rocks on the beach, but I would be disappointed because I would find like coral and not a dinosaur. So I was like, that's not cool. But when I got older, I realized that, hey, that is super cool because this is coral. And this is not tropical where I live now. Michigan is not tropical, but it was. And that kind of like threw me down this whole rabbit hole of like geology and, and everything. I think, you know, that's the thing. We always find like sh- like shells, fossilized shells as a kid. And you're like, well, this is boring. And then you like realize like I found fossilized shells in the Appalachian Mountains in West Virginia where there is not an ocean. Like, wait a moment. Yeah. That was cool as hell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, you guys are old there. Like that coral, like the Petoskey stone, which actually was not Petoskey. This is, this is a Rugos coral. It's 400 million years old. 
That's on your weird. desk. Yes. Well, I have a lot more on your desk. But I have. <laughs> As I told you, I have lots of rocks. I love our field so much. I love my I, I, I got a little shell. I got a little. Ammonite. That looks like an ammonite. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, you know, that's what yeah. happens when you're an archaeologist nerd, something like that. <laughs> I yeah, have nothing nearly that old on on my desk at all. I have I have a lot. Yeah. Damn it. I need to go get shells. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, that's the, just thinking about her finding geology so fascinating, you know, like talking about finding shells in the Appalachian Mountains or like even like Mount Everest is a great example where literally at the summit, there's limestone. That's I think thirty million years old and has shell fossils. Twenty nine thousand feet above sea level. That's wild. Yeah. There's also a bunch of dead bodies. They're off. They're frozen. <laughs> They're still there. They can't get them off. It's that's that boggles my mind. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, as sure. a detour. Uh, so so you obviously were you, you mentioned that you're <laughs> interested in uh, uh, the the hard sciences. Where where does like the the anthropology come into that? That came in because uh, I'm also super interested in like history and mythology. Um, I just love studying all sorts of different mythologies. I find myself like hyper focusing into like Norse mythology for some time and Greek mythology for some time and so on. And then I've always been into like studying different mythologies, just learning about each one. Like first, like maybe Norse mythology, Greek mythology, and so on. And then I was like, I wonder. What's what are the stories of like where I live in the Great Lakes? Do we have like, you know, gods and all these epic stories like the Odyssey and stuff like that? We do. And that's, you know, that's what kind of like made me dive into studying Anishinaabe culture. And just because that's like, that's where I live is in the Great Lakes. And we have, you know, to quote James Red Sky, who is a an elder from Kenora, Ontario, which is like up near the border of Minnesota, Lake of the Woods region. He was interviewed by Solomon Dubney for his uh, book, uh, Sacred Scrolls of the Southern Ojibwe. He basically said, he pointed to a shelf in the Bible, and he said, you see that Bible? There's that much and much more in Medeo. And that to me is just like, whoa, there's all this like knowledge that's just not written down. It's, it's in like, their ancestral memory. And they did recount these as birch bark scrolls and not rock art, but that's like shorthand. It's like pre-hieroglyphics kind of deal. It's like where one image will represent a whole story, which is so cool, man. Yeah, man. No, that's that's really cool. And I also like you picked up on how you caught how you referred to it as uh we have those histories with that recognition of like tying yourself to the land. Mm-hmm. in a way of like recognizing like uh, you're not othering yourself mm-hmm. i thought that was really i caught on to that really appreciate yeah that. well i mean i have a tiny little bit of anishinaabe because i have on my dad's mom's side her her side of the family is french canadian and oh, so gotcha. it was very common during the in fact it was encouraged in the colonial period for the voyageur to intermarry with uh, native women because they got by mirroring into that clan they would have access to that hunting territory and having access to the, all the furs and if you know i'm sure you guys know that the fur trade during like the colonial period is pretty much what built america essentially yes it did yeah. that is that yes just yes yeah 
solid, man. So where'd you go to undergrad, I guess? So you went, you get, went to, you're at Wayne State now. West, uh, I graduated from okay, Wayne. Okay, so you're done from Wayne. That's where you did your thesis. Yeah, I thought about getting my PhD. I almost decided to get it. And then I like, actually, I listened to one of your guys' episodes. I can't remember who you had on. She had like a dual PhD. Oh, lunch. Yeah, it's like in psychology and in, she was like something about left-handedness. And yeah, paleo-amp. Yeah. That was great. But she was talking about how hard it was for her to find a job with two PhDs. I'm like, wow, her resume is way better than mine. Maybe I shouldn't go for this. So I kind of decided against it. But my undergrad, I originally started going to a place called Saginaw Valley because I was pre-med at first. And I was just kind of studying anthropology, archaeology for fun, like between class and homework. I would go up into the fourth floor of the library there and just pick out different books about Ojibwe peoples and Anishinaabe peoples and read about them. And then I think it was after I took Gen Chem chemistry. I was like, wow, this is fucking hard. I'm going to have to do, you know, Chem 2, you know, Orgo 1 and 2. Physics one and two, calc one and two. I'm, like, uh, I'm not that good at math, so maybe I should stop trying to be a doctor and uh, follow this archaeology thing. Well, it's weird because I think, like initially, in a lot of cases, you want to get into something that you can see a career in, and I don't think we, as a discipline, advertise archaeology or anthropology as something that you can get a career in that's going to make you money. I mean, it's no. not going to make you a ton of money. It's no. not going to make you med money but it no, will certainly not yeah but there there are places for folks in anthropology oh yeah absolutely. And, and, and archaeology so it's it's i feel like that's that's a very common thing that we see is that you people are like yeah i'm gonna go for like a real job and then i'll study this like on the side but you can you can like pursue this as a career oh yeah definitely and like there's so many different avenues that you could take anthro like i was a tour guide on Mackinac Island for five seasons. And I really looked at that as like kind of like my field work. And I looked at that, even though I worked 70 hours a week giving tours to people, I kind of was involved in this place that was like, it's sacred. Like that's Mackinac Island is the spot I'm going to talk about in my paper where the spot of recreation of the world after the destruction of flood. And the Anishinaabe up there still believe that. Yeah, those those flood stories are pretty ubiquitous across oh, North yeah. America. Yeah, oh, yeah. Know, everyone everyone has one, which is always fascinating. Uh, just as a as an aside, but yeah, it's usually a crazy arc, you know. Yeah, the story. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, it's almost like there was like this time period where there was a lot more ice and then it started to melt. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Which is, that would be like all this fresh water all of a sudden. And yeah. back when the rivers were not as deep, they were all, you know, fairly shallow and wide and very susceptible to flooding these large landscapes. If they got over, oversaturated, who, who would have, who would have guessed, right? Well, yeah. And that's the interesting thing is that, you know, in I've read so many different sources from so many different, you know, it, whether it was a historic literature or an ethnologist or an anthropologist or it was a native themselves that wrote it, talking about the flood, different versions of who, what characters were, you know, it's kind of like filling the mad lib of who was the, the one that inspired the muskrat to swim down to the bottom and grab the piece of soil to create the land. It could be Hennebozio, it could be Milkomis, it could be the animals themselves. 
could have been just Manitou, could have been all sorts of different people or Manitous. But the, there was one story from James Red Sky, who I mentioned a little earlier, who I've never found this anywhere else, where he mentioned that the creator tried to create the world four times. The first three times he failed because there was too much water and there was too much ice. And each time it took to recreate was between 2,000 and 4,000 years. It's like, well, that's exactly like the length of time that these pro, pro-glacial lake periods were around. Where there was, the water was, there was a lot of ice. They couldn't go further north, you know, because the ice was there. And then all that water and seasonal flooding. That's fascinating. Yeah. I thought when I read that, like, no way. It like literally fits right into my, because I found that when I was doing some heavy research into my thesis, because I kind of developed this idea giving tours because there's uh, Mackinac Island is, I mean, as it says in the story, it is on the back of the Great Turtle. It rose out of the water. But uh, for geologists, that island is one of the best places you can go in the Great Lakes to see paleo shorelines. There's over 25 on the island, all over it. And there was one spot where I would stop with my buggy and my passengers. It's called Rifle Range. And in my Geology of Michigan book, we specifically mentioned Rifle Range as a great place to see ancient shorelines. And you can see 11 that roll down a hill from what road is a carriage road down to Fort Mackinac. A lot of people usually tell the story about the attack at Fort Mackinac from the British there. But then I started to talk about, well, actually, look at these ancient shorelines. And we talk about isostatic rebound, which is the, it's like, the crust of the earth is solid, obviously, because we're all on top of all our buildings and we drive around on it and everything. But in the mass scale, it's, it behaves more like a plastic. And when you put something really heavy on top of it, it'll sink, kind of like in the foam of a mattress or the chairs we're sitting in right now. It's depressed under the weight of our butts. But then when we stand, the foam will return to its original shape. And that tendency for returning to its original shape is called mitostasy. And so the, the mitostasy and the, the active rebounding is called isostatic rebound. And that happens, it's still happening to this day in Michigan, very, very, like almost unmeasurable. But up in Hudson Bay, it still is rebounding, I think, something like March or inches a year. That's wild, especially, and that's like based on like from the glaciers, right? Because you have like, mm-hmm. like I don't, I don't remember how high the glaciers are, but that's like a big chunk of ice that you're just like sitting on top of this. Oh, yeah. Like, like insane amount michigan like over i'll use my hand i don't know if you've ever seen anyone do this the, the ice was basically this from here to here was what they call something a hinge line which is where there was the most or where, where they're actually rather able to measure isostatic rebound in the crust of like the lower peninsula and over that point is about a mile mile and a half thick up near hudson bay it was like two miles thick just and immense, you know, the, the place just seems 2 million years long, almost. It was like 2.1 million years ago, I think, is when it technically started. And that's exhibited through ice cores, where we can see 800,000 years back. But, you know, the, the peaking and troughing of CO2 concentrations, and it's in those interglacial periods, or rather the troughs of CO2, that's a, a glacial period. And then when we get peak, there's higher amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. So that indicates it was warmer because it's a greenhouse gas, you know, climate change, all that sort of thing. It'd be wild for you just like for 
like a, a human to walk up and be like, oh, there's this big old pile, like a mile high pile of ice. Like, I guess I shouldn't keep going on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess. I think, though, with the continental glaciers, it would just like be like a gradual thing. And you wouldn't even realize if you're walking on top of it that you would probably be like a mile above the actual rock because that just would be the ground, basically. But there was probably lots of fissures and crevasses in there that, you know, you could fall into. I, in a book, uh, Talking Rocks, Carl Godboy, Earth Walks is what he, his, his native name is. is he, he said they called it the old man is what they called it, the ice. And in one of their stories, it's like the dueling of two shamans, where it's like there's an old man winter and then there's like the youthful spring. And if they would battle every year and the spring would win every year, obviously. And uh, that he, he thinks that was a metaphor for like the ultimate, I guess, victory of spring taking over the land because there's no more ice, really, like there once was. Huh. Dude, that's fascinating. And on that note, we're going to go ahead and close out this segment. We'll be right back with episode 133 of Life in Ruins here with uh, Josh Wolford. Welcome back to episode 133 of Life in Ruins podcast. We're here with Josh Wolford, and I, uh, we just we just got to go dive straight into it. You have an interesting story about something you found in a privy. Oh. Could you tell us about like what your field school was and yeah. what this interesting artifact was? So in my field school for Western Michigan University, we did two different sites. The first site was on this island in, in the lake in southeast Michigan called Apple Island, where we weren't really looking for like Native American stuff. We were doing more of like a, we were actually working under like a, a grant for to, to try to get the island put under the uh, National Historic Registry. And we ended up succeeding. We got registered from the work we did there. But we were studying like Victorian era vacationing, which like vacationing was like a new thing at this time period. But then, so that we were there for like four weeks. And then for the next four weeks, we went up to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, camped on Lake Superior in Munising for all that time. And every day we drove up to the Hiawatha National Forest to this place called Colwood. And Colwood was a, a cordwood a lumber town that was predominantly populated by Finns, Finnish people. And there was like one non-Finn and he was like the headmaster and he lived in the nice house and all the other Finns, the Finns lived in kind of like the not nice houses because they were the workers. The town's no longer there. If you go there now, it's literally just pine plantation and you can see like holes in the ground from privies and from looters. So that knowing that that site was heavily looted, we ended up just kind of studying looting behavior as well, partially also with like Finnish, you know, culture in the Upper Peninsula at Lumber Camp. So we'd always joke around that we would think that, you know, these looters are like tweakers or something like that, going up to the woods to go dig up bottles because they dig up the bottles and then they sell them. So I was five feet down a privy that had, you know, modeled soil, there's no strata at all. So it indicated looting behavior. And, you know, kept find, finding things like a boot that was 100 years old and like an old sweater. And it was amazing. It was wool. It was, you know, kind of tells you how good wool is. It didn't even degrade after 100 years. And, you know, a pile of what a privy is. But then, but beneath all that stuff, at the very bottom, I found 
it just looked like a a pipe stem sticking out of the soil, but it was glass. It wasn't white ball, you know, clay, which we found tons of in on Apple Island because that was late 1800s, which is now very common to find those sorts of pipes. This was clear glass and it looked manufactured, not blown. And so I was like, oh, baby, that's a crap pipe. And then I, you know, dig out around it, got it all perfect. And uh, I ended up on one of the graduate students' posters for looting behavior and it was the crack pipe. <laughs> and I remember actually talking about that when someone was asking me, what was, what was one of your favorite things you found at Colwood? I mean, there was axe blades and old saw blades all over the place. That's really cool. Found old Finnish, old like medicine bottles with Finnish like, written on it. Old medicine bottles that were literally only on the market for one year, like from children's like cough and syrup that had both morphine and alcohol and I can't remember what else in it. So obviously that didn't stand on market very long. But I said, you know, the crack pipe, just because it was indicative of all like the behavior of the people that, you know, looted that place. That's, that's interesting. That's, that's fascinating. Wild. <laughs> Anthropology. <laughs> Uh, the anthropology of looting is an interesting one. Oh, Fueled yeah. by much crack, maybe some meth in there as well. Oh, probably. It, it keeps them going. Well, not the archaeologists, but the looters. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Caffeine. <laughs> keeps us going. Caffeine and, and usually alcohol is what fuels an archaeologist. Oh, and it's not just archaeologists. I'll tell you that, you know, pretty much every field school does that. I know I've heard the geology field school and they party a lot. Oh, I... I've heard the same thing. I think geologists yeah. might be on par with the archaeologists. Oh, yeah. yeah, they're which, cool. But not the biologists. I've heard the biologists. They don't cool. party as much. No. Yeah. I was thinking about that the other day. They don't, they're a little bit more studious. They care about birds and plants and Yeah, I mean, I do too, but I... <laughs> It's just, <laughs> just like it's salt, a whole discipline. We love you. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I minor in biologist, so I absolutely love it. But yeah, they don't like the party like the geologists or the archaeologists do. Fair. Well, we wanted to start off this segment with that because Josh was telling us this story like in the in the green room in between segments. And we're like, you need to tell our audience the, about the crack pipe you found. We're, that's how we're going to kick this off. But on, <laughs> on to something more serious, we really wanted to talk about Josh's thesis and how it's not only interdisciplinary, but also is is in my experience, rarity to see someone incorporate who's not from a, an indigenous background, indigenous perspectives into the work to give a more holistic understanding of the research questions and research outcomes. And I really, really like your introduction. Like it, it reads very much like James Dietz and how he would like any article or book he would do. He would like set a narrative. And if it's okay, can I read your first yes. paragraph? Because it's, it's fantastic. Thank okay. You. Out tucked away in the far reaches of the northern edge of the earth lies a vast wilderness of forest and plains, tundra and rock, lakes and rivers, much of which has remained seemingly unchanged since the last vestiges of the retreat of Ice Age glaciers. This land has not always appeared this way. It was locked under the forceful grip of an ancient ice sheet that spread across North America, an ice sheet that scoured, plucked and pruned the land and left it never looking the same. But this cold wilderness was not devoid of life, language and culture just as its modern counterpart 
isn't devoid of these things today. The ancestors of the indigenous peoples who live in the boreal forests of this northern land today were witness to the changing of this land. They lived through the cataclysmic changes to which it wrought, and they lived to tell the story. And tell their story they did. For thousands of years, the succeeding generations of northern peoples have hunted, gathered, fished, danced, and loved in the land their ancestors did the same on. They witnessed events that geologists and archaeologists long to know and who spend their livelihoods trying to know about. Since the meeting of their two worlds, the scientists and the natives have had a clash of their worldviews. Yet there are numerous facets of reality that they could learn from each other and corroborate each other's narrative. That's really well done. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Also, I try to I try to not make it like boring. Like science can be really boring, but also like it's so fascinating. I, I just wanted to I guess try to make it a little bit more. One of my my professors said that it was evocative, and uh, that's what I try to go for. I guess is that I read like Farley Mullet is probably one of my favorite authors. Uh, he's kind of a famous Canadian author, and he. Uh, his most famous book is like Never Cry Wolf, but my book that I really like from him is called People of the Deer. And that's a lot of inspiration came from, from that book, for sure. Highly recommend. Yeah, no, that was great. I'd, I'd say it was evocative, Connor. Yeah, no, I was gonna, I was going to say that's it's great. And also thank you for letting us read it because uh, oh, if absolutely. you read my opening paragraph, I might have PTSD. And Well, yeah. I was worried about that. <laughs> sending mine. I was like, oh, well. There's pieces I need to fix. You know, I want to <laughs> add stuff to it, take things away because I reread it now for the hundredth time. And I'm like, oh, geez, I could do so much better than this in this part of the paper. But, you know, I'm always going to be picking myself apart. I'm really yeah, I can't. I can't look. I can't. I can't look at my thesis anymore. But um, <laughs> the best thesis is a done thesis. It is. <laughs> yeah, it is. So what was the goal of this thesis? Like you're, you're obviously studying the intersection of a bunch of different things. Mm -hmm. Like what, what was the kind of goal going into your writing of this? I guess it was me just, you know, kind of developing this idea over five years of, you know, driving my carriage tours. That's kind of where all this started and how I just thought it was amazing how both the geology and the, you know, the Native American old tradition, the Anishinaabe old tradition, basically corroborated each other. And how, like, because I would maybe sometimes, not as much as I would, you know, you would think, but I would deal with, like, somebody on my carriage tour, on a public carriage tour, would be like, isn't the earth, like, 6,000 years old or something? And that happened. Not as often. But this kind of just, like, helps corroborate, like, no, there was people here that witnessed the water and the ice of the, of the Pleistocene and, you know, the formation of the subsequent Great Lakes that came afterwards. But then, you know, also the narrative that is behind modern geologic theory corroborates what the Anishinaabe peoples tell, tell us that they saw, that their ancestors saw, which is just so fascinating to me. And, uh, you know, the book, there's one book that actually, you know, I sent to you guys as one of my recommended was it's called Talking Rocks. And it's about, it's authored by a Minnesota state geologist and an Ojibwe elder from, I think he taught at University of Minnesota Duluth for some time, but they basically like, you know, it's a conversation is what the book is kind of about. It's not very academic. It'd be great for like undergraduate, you know, intro students for anthro, or maybe like learning about like Native Americans, 
but it, it shows like the interdisciplinary work of where how geology and and or like hard science rather and indigenous philosophy are you know compatible because right? i mean like studying ecology the whole science of ecology the field of ecology started from indigenous people all over the world because like at first ecology wasn't considered a science because you know people would say there's no way all this stuff is interconnected you know all these the the a little like bug or a little like shrimp freshwater shrimp that lives in the river that can affect you know the eagles or something like that but then you realize that you know it's all interconnected the you know that's kind of why i wanted to take you know geology and biology to help me understand better you know the people of that time period one thing that i did notice and like this is not a citation list that i'm necessarily familiar with but how difficult was it to come across indigenous authors on the subject rather than like anthropology or ethnographers who were just kind of repeating stories that they heard. Cause like you, you have a lot of indigenous narratives <clears throat> and indigenous oral history present throughout your thesis and how they really corroborated with the geology and the archeology span really nicely, as you would expect people who are descendants of those who lived <clears throat> through these things. Like what was that like trying to find indigenous voices or, or promote the indigenous speakers themselves well some some of my sources i got because what kind of got me into one thing that got me into anthropology was michael john who passed away you know when i was kind of young and he was just really interested in like geology and 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 studying archaeology for his own you know fancy and he just really liked it and he really he started finding stone mounds in southeastern michigan that he you know some of them were from farmers but he associated some others with like caribou hunting structures. And so he kind of dove in and bought all sorts of books, you know, about Anishinaabe culture and, and geology and all sorts of things like that. He passed away and my cousin ended up giving me a lot of his books. And many of them were like from Basil Johnston, you know, Ojibwe heritage, the Manitous, which is the spiritual world of the Ojibwe. Um, so I kind of had this nice, I guess, launching pad for me with sources was from like this two boxes of books that I got from my uncle. And that kind of like I read through all of those and then I just started, you know, that kind of showed me the right questions to ask or maybe the certain things just to look up on Amazon. I would just always Google like different books on Amazon to read. And then I would just find myself digging through old books in the in the library. So it kind of was like this is this research is like I guess like 10 years in the making. So I kind of started doing this stuff like when I was a senior in high school. And so it's taken a long time to kind of find all these different sources. It kind of comes from like, also my dad, he likes to study theology, but he always talks about uh, using a hermeneutic approach. And so I always really liked that. So I was trying to read from the perspective of, you know, Anishinaabe first, and then not from what some anthropologists said, but what did the Anishinaabe say, you know? Did you ever find any discrepancies or like differences in how the anthropologists interpreted or wrote down these kind of origin stories was there was there ever any like big differences between kind of the primary lit- literature the primary source versus kind of this the later anthropologists kind of uh sort of i know that like in the book 
Sacred Scrolls of the Southern Ojibwe by Solomon Dudney. I think it was 1976 that he wrote that. That's where he's investigating. Um, so they would, I don't think they still do. So I said they would inscribe different stories on birch bark and they would hide them away in caves or, or what have you. The Medewawin Scrolls is what they were. And Medewawin is the Grand Medicine Society in uh, Anishinaabe culture. And so one of the primary objectives of Medewawin is to keep creation stories and the history of the culture. But someone Duty was trying to accomplish with that research was, you know, follow their migration because there's migration scrolls. They, the Anishinaabe say they, they originated on the coast, on the Atlantic Ocean, and then they migrated to the, where they live now, to the land of wild rice at, uh, at Southern Lake Superior, basically. And all the way up into like, you know, the Salto peoples are up in like Lake Winnipeg which are kind of like what can be considered OG Cree, which is like a mixture of Ojibwe and Cree cultures. But he kind of didn't believe that Medewin was pre-contact. There was some anthropologists for some time, there might be still some today, that believe that Medewin was not pre-contact. It was a result of maybe social social movements within Anishinaabe culture themselves to resist, you know, European, Europeanization or Anglo like Christianization of their culture. And it was them trying to like kind of resist that. But there's lots of, there's evidence that, uh, you know, of birch rock schools found in caves that are, you know, predate contact period. And there's rock art that could be associated with medieval traditions that are, you know, there's one in Michigan. It's uh, in the upper peninsula. It's, they call it the Spider-Man. It's not really a Spider-Man, but that's just what it's called. That's like 1500 years old. So that right there comes fits pre-contact. So that's like really the only discrepancy I guess I'm finding that some anthropologists don't necessarily agree, oh well medieval win pre-contact or post-contact or I mean I'm, there's definitely influence that you can see because no culture is isolated from itself. Everyone influences everything. You know, like right. we Ojibwe influenced Pawnee I'm sure in some way and, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. What's the reception been of your thesis to uh, to descendant communities if, if it's been shared with them yet, I guess? I haven't shared the thesis with them per se, but I've definitely, I've given tours to plenty. And actually, I was like a blessing. I picked up, the, it was a private tour I had where I picked up in the early morning, one of our bigger private carriages. And it was a class from Bay Mills Reservation, which is on like an hour from the island. And it was their folklore class. And I had like three elders on there that their first language was Ojibwe. I had students, they're all, they're all Ojibwe. And they told me a lot of stories and I shared with them what my thesis was. And they go, That's fascinating. They loved it. Another time that I had, I remember I gave a tour. I used to tell the, the flood story. I used to tell that on my tour. And when we stopped at the arch, arch rock is where people would get off and, you know, go take a picture of, of a big rock. Two people came up to me and they said, did you know you have a descendant of Chief Shimawakons in your carriage? Chief Shimawakons was a, was a famous Ojibwe chief who fought in the War of 1812. And he was like one of the ones that stole the fort from the Americans. And I've read lots about him and I'm just, oh my gosh, no way. They were like super thankful. They go, thank you for telling our stories. Because they told me, I'm like that is that means so much to me. 
No, that's, that's really cool. And I think, you know, something that I've, in terms of larger conversations that we've had with like in the Society for American Archaeology and how to do collaborative community-based archaeology and indigenous archaeology, like doing a very, uh, a truly collaborative thesis is like really hard to do because of yeah. a short window. Yeah. But in terms of, you know, reading your thesis and how you've done it, I think it's done respectfully. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it, how it comes across to me in terms of like highlighting, like this is what the indigenous folks say. And, and I've never really... You know, one of the things that archaeologists struggle with it, in terms of, you know, the old guard and not believing that oral traditions are, are legit and how the archaeological record in and of itself is based on interpretation bias. But like kind of your approach with like these are geologic events that like are not disputed. This is and hard. Science. This is hard science. And these are yeah. these stories that, that talk about these known geologic events mm-hmm. in pre-contact is like. Oh, that's geology is where we should be going as to cite like, yeah, oral traditions are legit because we can, you know, I, that's what I picked out of this. Like, oh, wait a moment. Yeah. I mean, there's examples all over the world too, other than just mine. I think nature published something, which is like the journal to get into, I think is Australia where these, these Aboriginal stories talk about this star that fell and exploded on the earth and like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then like, um, astronomers are like, actually, we believe it, like a comet or something hit here like 48,000 years ago. Right. And like, yeah, people were there too. So they probably aren't, we should probably listen to them a little bit more. Yeah. I think, although the journal Nature now has, in terms of whoever's doing their archaeology vetting, Nature's not as prestigious in archaeology anymore. I'm sure other yeah. disciplines, it's fine. But some. Yeah. If, if you're in biology and you get published in Nature, you're doing good stuff. Yeah, their their review process is questionable at at best, in archaeology wise. It's it's coming across as clickbaity. Like, oh, yeah, we did a uh, an episode all about what those mounds down in Louisiana was that a nature article that came out somewhere weird, but I think it was. Physicists did it, didn't they? It was like, yeah. Well, and 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 there was a society for the SAAs archaeological record they just came out with like a rebuttal like the state archaeologist came out and was like yeah nah fam yeah the state archaeologist was not (laughs) happy with these random people showing up and dating mounds on campus like yeah so we'll we'll wait to see but yeah no this was this was good i'd be like intrigued to see what the cultural offices of some of these descendant communities yeah I, i applied um so i'm not working in like anthropology at all right now but I, when I got out of grad school, I applied to be like a tribal historic preservation officer for a couple different tribes. Got interviewed, but didn't, unfortunately didn't get hired, but they liked the research. I thought it was cool. So, all right, we're going to go ahead and uh, end this a little bit longer than usual segment right here. We'll be right back with episode 133 here with uh, Josh Wolford here after these sweet, sweet messages from our amazing producers. Welcome back to episode 133 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are with Josh. In this segment, we wanted to like dive into the specifics of what you kind of found, your correlation between oral history and geologic events. Do you mind diving in there? Let, let us know what you kind of correlated through your research. Yeah, absolutely. So like some examples of like places and narratives that I have that I, in my research for Shake the Earth was uh, the creation story, according to Anishinaabe tradition, 
which can include a variety of details depending on the context of recounting uh, something that's called Arsokanak, which are sacred living stories or stories of the grandfathers, depending on how you translate that word. It's actually Arsokan is singular and Arsokanak is plural. But Arsokanak is an animate gender of the word for stories that exists in sacred context and are treated as living non-human persons. The act of telling such sacred living ancestral memories can be elaborated upon or made more concise depending on the situation, you know, and the teller. So it changes a little bit depending on the situation or who's telling the story. But the most ubiquitous version of an uh, Arsokanak that uh, I focused on was the story of creation that involves a creation, destruction, recreation sequence. First, the universe came into existence from the inspiration, the dream that a creator had, Gichimanitu. And that was before time even began, where they saw everything that is, and they created the universe. And after the creation, there was a destruction through the form of a flood. And in the the long form of the story, it was from Nanabojo, who was like the ancestral embodiment of Anishinaabe culture, along with Mayinkun, who's the wolf. They went to go kill a, witch, uh, a manitou called Mishapesh, which is the great lynx who controls all the water in not just the Great Lakes, but just, you know, inland lakes, things like that. And Mishapeshu lived in the caves underneath Mackinac Island. So they went there to go kill him, but they only succeeded in cutting off his tail. Hence why lynx have short tail. But they didn't kill him because his body's covered in copper and silver nuggets. So he's also like a patron manitou of copper from like Isle Royal and places like that. And in his anger, Mishapeshu flooded the earth in retaliation killing pretty much all life. And it was, you know, after that flood that we have the, for those who aren't familiar with this creation story, it's been, you know, publicized in like children's books and stuff like that, where there's the great flood. And then it was a great turtle who rose out of the water that offers back for all the animals that survived. And it kind of depends on the story that you look for, but it involves the animals trying to dive down to the bottom of the water to grab a piece of soil to create land on the back of the great turtle. And it's from the turtle's back serving as the nucleus point for where the earth was reborn. And according to Anishinaabe oral traditions, that is Mackinac Island. And the word Mackinac that we have today is just a shortened version of the whole word, which is which means place of the great turtle. And they refer to the whole region as the place of the great turtle. And because of that notion that land started there or restarted there and it regrew from there. Because in the in the oral tradition, they say that the waters receded and the land rose. We talked a little bit about isostatic rebound earlier. And that's where the land literally rose that we can measure. But then also the waters ended up uh, receding away because it 11,000 years ago, there, there was a time period where the glacial lake phase was called uh, the Algonquin phase. And the early phase was 230 feet higher than modern lake levels in the stretch of Mackinac region. It would have appeared as a very flooded place compared to today. But then that's because the, the water was blocked from uh, escaping further north to fill in the Lake Superior Basin and also to drain out into like what is now Georgian Bay 
it was blocked by that ice. But then as years went on, the climate started to warm even more. The ice moved further north, opening more avenues for the water to fill in, the basins to fill in. But then also the land began to rise. And because of that, you know, two-factor of ice disappearing and land rising, there was a, an event where the water drained out. At this, it's called the North Channel. It's uh, Georgian Bay. So there's Lake Huron. And then on the north part of Lake Huron, there's Georgian Bay. And it drained across, I think, the Mattawa River and Ottawa River into St. Lawrence, into the ocean. And so it dropped from 230 feet higher than modern lake levels to 150 feet lower than modern lake levels in only a matter of like a few hundred years. And so the people that were there, it's like almost like someone pulled a plug on all that water and it disappeared. And so you would have been able to walk from the lower peninsula to Mackinac Island at that time. And there was only a mere river that went around the north side of the island. And that river valley was discovered in the 1920s. You know, the, the article I used to cite that part of my paper was literally written by Dr. Stanley. It's called the Stanley phase of the Glacial Lake Algonquin. And it was actually during that time when Lake Huron was split into two lakes, three lakes, depending on the source you look at or what time period it is. But there was this isthmus of land that went from Alpena, Michigan to Amberley, Ontario. And there were some archaeologists at University of Michigan in 2009 that were looking at bathymetry maps of Lake Huron and this Alpena Amberley Ridge, or they call it the 100 Fathom Shoal for, for shippers, for uh, people on like the freighters and stuff. And they were looking on that to find maybe there's some, you know, paleo habitation sites. And they didn't find habitation sites, but they found what they believe is a caribou hunting corral that's 9,000 years old that's at the bottom of Lake Huron. Because at about, I think it was during the, that's the Algonquin stage. Then the Nipissing stage was after the Algonquin was when the water rose back up. I think it was like, I don't know my Nipissing geology as much as the Algonquin phase. I focused a little bit more on that, but I think it was like 50, 60, 70 feet higher than modern lake levels. Maybe more. Sure. Maybe there's someone out there listening to us that that knows, you know, the pissing shoreline elevation levels. But I have so two I'll, comments real yes. quick. Because like this is fascinating. It's been really hard for me to find a point to like stop you because everything you keep saying is just great. But I, like two things. Yeah, One, what sure. is it? What is it? Royal Island? What was that called? Isle Royal. Isle so Royal. So there's a student and at my department, IU, who's out of Michigan, who works up there. And I recently found out that has the oldest evidence of copper mining and metallurgy in the fucking world, the world not just the world. United States, the world. Yes. That place is like nuts for mining copper and doing cool stuff out there. So like one little fun fact with that Two, a little bit of a rant, the turtle Island thing. So Lakotas, I think are now the largest recognized tribe now by population. They beat out the Diné, but the, Asinanabe, I can never say that word. Anishinaabe. Um, Anishinaabe are now like six largest, but like all those groups that come out of the council of the seven fires or four fires, like Potawatomi's, there's this whole macro cultural linguistic group that are all related that, that come out of the Great Lakes are also some of the more larger tribes by population nations today by population. And so like a lot, and they're very active and this turtle island narrative where everyone like now like, Oh, so you, you know, land back or, you know, totally agree with what I'm saying is, is like this whole 
you know, like save Turtle Island thing or when people ask me specifically about, well, let's talk about Turtle Island. I'm like, I'm not one of these goddamn people. Like, no, we don't believe in this turtle narrative. That's a very specific thing yeah. that just had a happenstance out of colonization that their narrative is like everywhere. Yeah, yeah we don't have turtles. Yeah. Like, what are you talking about? I'm from the Great Plains. You think there's water out there? We have rivers. We don't have lakes. Yeah. And if you have a yeah, problem that's... with that, email jreed at pawneenation.org and you just send all those that hate over over there. <laughs> let let Matt deal with that. And uh, I'm sure uh, Matt, he's, yeah, he'll deal with it. But anyways, just like side <laughs> no, tangent. That's fine because like, well, it, it, sometimes I feel like people, and you probably deal with this, uh, is that sometimes people will think of as Native American cultures, this monolithic, ubiquitous thing. There's hundreds. I have a map behind me. That's my, that's, well, one of the old uh, National Geographic maps that you'd get. And the insert, that's all the languages, language families. It's like, there's so many different kinds of cultures or different cultures on just North America. So does your map show the Lakotas out in the Great Plains? Um, I see the Pawnee in the Great Plains. As they should be. Yeah. (laughs) I don't see the Lakota. Are they, are they by the Great Lakes? Is that map right? Because there's two kinds of maps you'll find. You'll find like language maps that are based on like 19th century where people were. And then you'll find like ones from based on like 16th century where people generally are placed before displacement of colonization. So I always go that route. Yeah. It's it's difficult. Like I don't really like when I put maps in my paper, it's like I don't like any map I find because it's like, well, they all move. They're all these are all mobile people and they don't stay like. So Lake Huron is called Lake Huron because that's where when the French came and discovered it, that's where the Huron were living because they were displaced by the Iroquois and they were living. They weren't from there. They moved there. They were like refugees, essentially. Yeah. I always go with the map that shows the Pawnee Nation having the largest territory possible. So oh, that's, yes. That's that's my go to is like, OK, where is the largest landmass map? That's the one that I'm throwing anywhere not not showing the lakota later <laughs> yeah, which, yeah. which you, you, sure. you kindly re- refer to as uh the invaders oh yeah <laughs> the, the the great the great suin invasion yeah the, yes the, that's i like to remind part. people that lakotas and cheyennes and arapahoes aren't from the plains originally like i always have to throw that in somewhere like they're not plains people yeah, they're way, from the way, great way. lakes <laughs> get back across the missouri river please you, that's where you belong no i shouldn't say that oh, go get, get canceling what are you doing <laughs> but no i i agree it's like there's specific narratives for like turtle you know the turtle and it's like Mackinac island is like the turtle island and a lot of times people refer to the all of north america as turtle islands well i don't know if everyone believes that and all the different stories that are out there you know like the hopi they, they like you know isn't like the ant people and they came up from like below yeah you generally are going to find star people and then yeah which there that's also an anishinaabic culture which is you know to get get into like the the creation story uh the version i like to tell on my tour was that it was uh nokomis or you can call her sky woman as well she fell through the hole in the sky to the back of the great turtle and the hole in the sky is the pleiades which is pretty interesting i always thought it is Pagetagizik and Anishinaabe. That's also which in a ceremony called the Shaking Tent Ceremony, the Achisiakilin, that tent that they use mimics the Pleiades because they use 
depends on, I've, I've read some sources that say that it uses seven poles like there are seven stars in the Pleiades to mimic the Pigeagishik as like this conduit for channeling the spirits into this tent. See, now you're going to get me on another, now this is actually Sorry. a rant. This is like, this is actually contributing archaeologically to this conversation in a meaningful way. So thanks, we thanks see, for doing that. <laughs> yes, <sorry. laughs> so the, the Pleiades is a major star assemblage, some mm-hmm. whatever you want to call that mm-hmm. uh, cosmologic thing that the Pawnees mm-hmm. gravitate towards. It's part of we have stories about it, but like I know it's also big at Cahokia, and I and there are Cahokian outposts just south of the great lakes and so when i see when i hear the 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 pleiades being like a major component or someone being associated specifically with the pleiades like usually it's like one or two people like these star people but there's there seems to be this connection i think back to cahokia with you know because the cahokia was a multicultural multi-ethnic it was a metropolis empire it was i mean it was like a state i mean hell i mean it's you know it had so much interactions everywhere that i'm always curious like the vestiges of cahokia coming across in different societies across the great lakes the great plains Mm -hmm. and eastern woodlands you know outside the missouri river ohio river mississippi like they had reach i don't know that's just when you were talking about the pleiades and the star woman comes to me i'm like i i bet my ass that there's a cahokian connection either directly or indirectly of, of that of that but i you know whatever this isn't an academic podcast oh, so well, don't it's, cite this it's all good the i mean there are there's mounds in grand rapids right along the grand river oh see be, there we go yeah they're they're in michigan there's even some a bit further north in the central mitten they're like kind of like hinge like not stonehenge it's not like mysterious stonehenge found in michigan now uh, what of those click clickbaity like yeah, right and next to the marbles. Viking tablets. Yes. <laughs> all well, place. so as I was talking earlier about like sub- submerged archaeological sites, there's one that they found in Grand Traverse Bay. And it's in 40 feet of water, but it's also probably another caribou hunting structure. But there's also a, a huge rock that has a mastodon carved in it, and it's underwater. And that was actually on an episode of Ancient Aliens. And of course, oh, I bet it was. of course, they were trying to make it seem like the aliens did it. And I'm like, no, because they're trying to make it like connected with how sea level rise. And then obviously look at, you know, well, sea level rise, there's all these like Atlantean states underwater. And look at this place in the Great Lakes. Aliens had something to do with it. It's like, no, man, like Lake Huron, Lake Michigan, when you're standing on the shoreline here, you're 580 feet above sea level. The ocean level does not affect the level of the lakes here. Dude, all people need to do is just read introductory textbooks for like intro to geologic sciences, intro to archaeology. Like that dispels any oh. of the BS that like Graham Hancock, who's now especially big with his Netflix oh, stuff. Netflix. He's on I Netflix. Watched it. I'll probably uh, watch it just to uh, see. So we're, we're going to do a review episode of that. We're bringing Jesse okay. Toon and Shane back on. We're all going to watch the first episode together and take notes and to do one of our little specials where we just. Mystery Science know. Theater 3000. Yeah, pretty, pretty <laughs> much. <laughs> yeah, man. Dude, well, this was a really fun conversation. I'm really glad we were able to get it on the podcast. And I, I this was just fascinating. And like you did, that was a really cool thesis. I hope you're able to get it in publication. And That's the it. goal. That's yes. the goal. Sweet, man. And so. Um, you know, before we end the show, Josh, what are a couple sources, books, articles, videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in 
ethno geo archaeology and <laughs> like this this yeah this whole this whole that's the best way about. i could describe what my paper is i guess uh, yeah there's so many sources i would love to like i can probably spend a whole other hour just talking about there's this and this and this well i mentioned it earlier it's called talking rocks the full title is talking rocks geology and Ten Thousand years of native american tradition in the lake superior region that's a mouthful it's not an archaeology book at all like a conversation between a geologist and an Ojibwe elder. And it kind of like, it breaks the ice of that, like, you know, these two different philosophical worlds can. Is that a pun? Did you just, did you just put a a geology pun in there on accident? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. I can't tell if this was intentional breaking the ice. Anyway, sorry, let me interrupt. I just wanted, I wanted all of us to acknowledge that this happened. I, well, doing a carriage tours, we, uh, I, it's a lot of education, but it was a lot of entertainment as well, which means a lot of puns came in those tours. Uh, another book I recommend is Ojibwe Heritage by Basil Johnston. That's a really good book into kind of delving into their cosmology and like the ordering of their universe, which is, uh, you know, it's really great. And I think essential to kind of understanding kind of my big idea. And then an archaeology paper or rather like anthropological paper. It's the prehistory of the Burnt Bluff area, which is about these rock art sites, Lake Michigan, where they believe that shamans canoed up to these caves and shot arrows at the rock art. And they're like the entire artifact assemblage in those caves is like 80, 83% projectile points that were not refinished that all have shattered tips. And there's no habitation in these, in these sites. And it's just purely a sacred site. And uh, that kind of like, that's one of my favorite. That's one of the things that actually got me into anthropology is I went to that cave when I was a senior in high school. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It sounds like that's just the tip of the iceberg with uh, literature recommendations, though. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Here we go again. Now, now the, the floodgates have been unleashed with all the goddamn Ice Age puns. <laughs> all right. We, war- we warned Josh about the shit show that is recording with us. Oh, I'll just don't worry about downhill it, so quickly. Uh, so where can our listeners find you on social media or email or c- get in contact with you? So you can find me on Instagram, uh, JM Wolford. So it's my first initial, middle initial, last name, pretty simple. Then if you want to like email me, you can email me at JM Wolford at, or JM Wolford 51 at gmail.com. If you have any questions, I can send you my thesis. I can, you know, answer questions about, you know, more things, have conversation about it. Yeah. Awesome. I'm, I'm also, uh, my last name, uh, my first and last name with a number because apparently I'm not the first C John in 23 in the world. So because this is a, a life in ruins, uh, we have to ask you a very important question. So if you could do it all over again, would you still choose to be an ethno geoarchaeologist? Yes. I don't know if I'd call myself an ethnogeoarchaeologist, but I definitely am an anthropologist who studies ethnogeoarchaeology. Hell yeah, man. Well, we just interviewed Josh Wolford. You can find him on Instagram at jmwolford and send him an email at jmwolford51 at gmail.com. Per usual, Connor. Rate, review the podcast, please. We actually got yes. a ton. We got a ton of them. We got like eight more reviews since like the last time. So thank you so much. Keep doing that. That's how we get out into the, the world. So thank you. If you have any yeah. problems with this episode, email Carlton. Any yeah. hate messages from <laughs> from his slander. If you have any biology, any 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 
problems with my biology hate, send it to me. We love interacting with you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you yes. all so much. And if you're listening to this show on the All Shows feed, please, please, please subscribe to our individual show, A Life in Ruins podcast. Uh, having you guys download our show directly from our show, not the All Shows feed, allows us to get, basically, we can actually see who's listening to our podcast, which allows us to get advertisers and sponsors for the show that help us run the show and produce additional content. The All Shows feed is considered its own different show, and we can't get metrics for that. So we have a base, we know more people are listening and following our show, but we can't see that because we can't see those numbers. So all shows feed fantastic place to see all the different shows on the APN and get a variety. But if you like our show, please subscribe to Life Merits. And with that, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. And if you've made it past the credits, you know it is our favorite time of the episode for Connor's witty joke. Connor, what do you have for me and Josh today? It's a doozy. So I, 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 I heard this story on the internet. So... This guy, like, finds himself as a cook on a ship that just, like, has set off. He, like, does, like, a quick survey of the kitchen. You know, everything seems right in in the right places. But he finds, like, several bags of potatoes that are all, like, shaped like penises. He's like, that's weird. And he he goes and asks the captain. He's like, hey, what's what's with all the potatoes looking like penises? I don't like it. Can Can we change that? And the captain says, well, you can't change it. This is a dictatorship. Oh, Jesus. God damn it, Connor. That's a good one. That's a good one. Okay. Tater. Tater. Oh. Tater's precious. Potatoes. Oh. Boil and mash them, stick them in a stew. Oh, God. Oh, God. Well, it's almost Thanksgiving, so we're about to be doing a lot of that. So, yes, all right. You well. And uh, with Josh, once again, thank you so much for being on the show. And with that, we are truly Thanks for out. having me, guys. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.